Our scripture passages this morning are Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 33, and 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 8. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 5 first. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,823. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Turning now to 1 Peter chapter 3, can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1,889. Peter says, Wives, in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word... They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. We're going to be uh, focusing more particularly on the First Peter 3 passage this morning, uh, we focused more on the Ephesians 5 passage last week, um, but both of the characteristics will come in. I'm using the same scripture passages from last week and this week because I want you to see that complementary aspect. I want you to see that just as men are called to something, so are women called to something. Uh, so yeah, here I am preaching on uh, a man, preaching on what women are supposed to do, so there's nothing dangerous about this at all, right? But... If we stick to God's word, then, you know, if any of you have complaints afterwards, I'll just say, take it to God, because that's what his word says. <laughs> I want to uh, share something with you. It's the opening story in John Piper's book, What's the Difference? Manhood and Womanhood Defined According to the Bible. This is what he shares. When I was a boy growing up in Greenville, South Carolina, my father was away from home about two-thirds of every year. And while he preached across the country, we prayed, my mother and my older sister and I, 
What I learned in those days was that my mother was omnicompetent. She handled the finances, paying all the bills, dealing with the bank and creditors. She once ran a little laundry business on the side. She was active on the park board, served as a superintendent of the intermediate department of our Southern Baptist Church, and managed some real estate holdings. She taught me how to cut the grass, splice electric cord, pull Bermuda grass by the roots and paint the eaves and shine the dining room table with a chamois and drive a car and keep french fries from getting soggy in the cooking oil. She helped me with the maps and geography and showed me how to do a bibliography and work up a science project on static electricity and believe that Algebra 2 was possible. Yeah, I still don't believe that. She dealt with the contractors when we added a basement and more than once put her hand to the shovel. It never occurred to me that there was anything she couldn't do. I heard one time that women don't sweat, they glow. Not true, my mother sweated. It would drip off the end of her long, sharp nose. Sometimes she would blow it off when her hands were pushing the wheelbarrow full of peat moss. Or she would wipe it with her sleeve between the strokes of a swing blade. Mother was strong. I can remember her arms even today, 30 years later. They were big, and in the summertime they were bronze. But it never occurred to me to think of my mother and my father in the same category. Both were strong, both were bright, both were kind, both would kiss me and both would spank me. Both were good with words, both prayed with fervor and loved the Bible. But unmistakably, my father was a man and my mother was a woman. They knew it and I knew it. And it was not mainly a biological fact. It was mainly a matter of personhood and relational dynamics. When my father came home, he was clearly the head of the house. He led in prayer at the table. He called the family together for devotions. He got us to Sunday school and worship. He drove the car. He guided the family to where we would sit. He made the decision to go to Howard Johnson's for lunch. He led us to the table. He called for the waitress. He paid the check. He was the one we knew we would reckon with if we broke a family rule or were disrespectful to mother. These were the happiest times for mother. Oh, how she rejoiced to have daddy home. She loved his leadership. Later, I learned that the Bible calls this submission. What we've been doing in our morning services the last few Sundays is talking about the idea that God has created us uniquely as men and as women. And when men are called to and live up to the role that God has given them, homes flourish, churches flourish, culture flourishes. But now we have to talk about that other aspect, the other side. We have to talk about what women are called to. And I I very purposely put the men down first because I just wanted to, you know, tell them this is what you're called to before we get to this reality, right? Before we get to the women. What we're talking about is complementarianism, the idea that God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood because they're both made in the image of God and both called to the dominion or cultural mandate in the scriptures, but they have different and complementary roles. And this is opposed to or in contrast to egalitarianism, the idea that men, men and women are equal and there are no role distinctions proper to men and women in the home and in the church and in culture. So with that being said, let's get into it. The theme, which is largely taken from John Piper's definition here in the book, What's the Difference for this morning, is biblical femininity is a joyful disposition to receive, affirm, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men. Biblical femininity 
is a joyful disposition to receive, affirm, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men. The first thing that we're going to do is I want to go back to the beginning. I want to go back to Genesis, and I want to root this again in created order and the way God created the world and the way God created us male and female. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about some challenges that women face because of the fall into sin. Um, If I could say that men's challenges are because of fall into sin, as they will harshly rule over or they will passively take the back seat, then we're going to talk about the challenges that women have, and that's um, going to be comparison. That is, they seek to find uh, affirmation in others rather than in their knowledge of being a daughter of God and uh, perfectionism. So they seek, they seek perfection in anything other than uh, Christ. They seek perfection in the way that they perform, right? And then the last thing that I want to do after talking about rooting in creation, talking about the challenges that women face, then I'm, I want to give a positive representation of what I'm talking about with biblical femininity and then call you to that by God's grace. So let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, is particularly important in this conversation because it says, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam in the garden is instructed to guard and care for, and that's where we get our definition of male headship or male leadership, right? But the first thing that God says is not good with his creation is the idea that man is alone. So God says he will make a helper suitable for him. I want to break down each part of that phrase, helper, and then suitable for him or fit for him. The conversation here is about whether, some, uh, whether the woman's role as helper makes her inferior to the more superior role as men and leadership or headship, right? I want to destroy that idea and that concept this morning. Helper is the word ezer in Hebrew. And it's important that we understand the context in which these words are used. Ezer is used. This is not a subordinate role to the husband, and I'm going to show you why. Most often when the word ezer is used in the Old Testament, it is describing the help God gives his people. God is my help. God is my shield. God is my rock. In fact, we have a very familiar hymn based off of this word, based off of a psalm. God our help in ages past. God our Ezer in ages past. Now, unless you want to tell me that God being our help somehow makes his role insuperior or inferior and not actually gives him glory, then you can tell me that the role of the woman as a helpmate, a helper suitable for him, is an insubordinate or an inferior role. It's not, because God as our help is his glory. He is our helper. He is our rock. He is our shield. And not only that, but think about it. Helper. Helper means that the man is insufficient to do the job. 
When I go to somebody and I say, I need your help, I'm not saying you're less than. I'm not saying you're less than me. I need your help because you're my little slave or my little minion or my little pion. I'm saying what I am trying to accomplish, I cannot do on my own, and I need you. In fact, some people even say that we should translate this necessary ally. That does not speak to the woman's role as inferior or less than. It actually speaks to her glory. Because, you know, women, you can kind of give your, the man next to you a little elbow and say, you can't do it without me. Because that's what this is communicating. And then the next phrase, suitable for him or fit for him. Equality and the calling as image of God and quality in the calling to have dominion over creation. But these roles are played out in different ways. This idea is that the role God has called women to play is complementary to the role God has called men to play. So men are play, playing this role of, of head, right? Leadership, headship. And then women are the suitable helpmate to assist him in that work. I've already, I've already said that does not mean that it is an inferior role or a less than role. But look at, the way, look at the way that she was created, from his rib. Not from his ear, not from his leg, from his rib. This is a picture of intimacy, closeness. Men and women are to have that she's supposed to be here, that she's side by side, that she's close to me as the rib is in my side. She's close to me as the rib is in my side. Sometimes when we're sleeping together and I start snoring, my wife jabs me in the rib and I feel like maybe she's trying to get an extra rib out of her creation or something. I don't know. She tells me she doesn't jab me, but it hurts. And because of this, because of this closeness, because of the fact that God created woman, because God saw that in creation it was not good for man to be alone, and the role that God had called men to be, to do, and to to lead, it was not going to be able to be accomplished without the woman, necessary ally. This is what, this is what the scriptures say. They say, and therefore the man shall leave his home, his father and mother, and cling to his wife. Now, maybe sometimes we don't think about this, but when Moses wrote Genesis, the idea that the calling would be to the man to leave his house, that the calling would be to the man to say, hey, you got to leave mama behind, buddy, would have been controversial. Even now, oftentimes when we think of this marriage companion, we think, woman, You need to leave your home and come over here. But that's not the calling. The calling is for the man to leave father and mother and cling to his wife. That she is now his primary relationship. That he owes allegiance and service and love to her. But the fall has distorted this, hasn't it? The fall has distorted this Remember the curses God declared over, over them, right? To the serpent, he said, you're going to be crushed. Because although this has happened, I have a plan, redemption coming through my son, Jesus Christ. Right? To the woman, he said, I'm going to increase your pain in childbearing. 
Now, I've been, in, I've been in the hospital room when my wife has given birth, and it's only increased my thankfulness that I am a man. It's only said, Lord, thank you that I am a man. Right? But also, your desire is going to be for your husband and he will rule over you. Okay, we're going to get back to that. But then look at, look at the, the, the curse upon the man. The curse is you're going to have to work the ground. You're going to have to work hard. The, the sweat is going to be on your brow. This is going to be difficult now. Where it was easy before, it's going to be difficult now. And I want you to think of what the response, the sinful response that men have to this, right? I need to work hard to provide now. I need to work hard to till the ground. Here's the response. Either I'm going to just sit here and I'm going to play Xbox all night because that's what I like to do. Or I'm going to harshly rule over people because I'm angry about how hard and difficult this is, okay? So that's what I would say that the, the sinful responses to this disordered desires from, from the curse of men. Um, but here where it says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I think oftentimes in our modern context, this gets understood as the man is going to rule harshly over her over the woman, and therefore, because of that, the woman is going to be embittered towards men and have a, hip, have a, a disregard for men and then desire to usurp the man's authority and basically just feminism, okay? That's what I would say. Now, that's, that's an appropriate interpretation of this, but I think it's a little bit deeper than that. I think it describes the disordered desires that come into us from sin and these are unique to uh, the women, as is the, the passiveness of men and also the harsh ruler uh, ruling over of men. Think James chapter 4, which says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, your disordered desires, the battle within you? Your desire, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So this is descriptive of both men and women, these disordered desires, right? And last Sunday I talked about what I think are characteristics of men's disordered desires and the way that they are called to lead in that passiveness and in that harshness, right? And, then, and I said we're called to strike the, me- the middle. We're called to be like Christ, These are the challenges that women face. Now, when I say this, I'm not saying that no men also struggle with these realities. But what I am saying, because women are created particularly gifted in the ways that they are, those things which allow women to to assist and to push forward the dominion mandate of bringing all things in subjection to Christ... They can also turn the opposite way and poison and bring death and destruction the same way that men do, right? And these two are comparison and perfectionism. These are the challenges that I think uh, women face in, in a more varsity way than men, okay? <laughs> Most women set up men as idols, and they look to them to provide emotionally, spiritually, physically what only God can provide. But the problem is, apart from Christ, 
men's response to this idolatry of them is to oppress women in return. Hence the modern coping mechanisms of independence, self-sufficiency, and control to deal with that. I don't need no man. I don't need no man. And you know what? A lot of times this is rightfully earned because they've been hurt. They've been abused. They've been sinned against. You know, a lot of times this is rightfully earned because all the women in this culture and society have experienced are boys who can shave. Not men. Nonetheless, women create a veneer strength of independence and an often earned skepticism about men. One way these disordered desires then are expressed is in comparison. And the idea here is that women are seeking approval and validation in something else, somebody else, rather than Christ. Okay? Women are known for comparing themselves specifically to other women. Now, before you think I'm just making this stuff up and I'm stereotyping, I'm going to uh, quote... A, an article in a United Kingdom news outlet called The Telegraph. I'm going to quote the seculars for you so that you can see they're seeing the reality of these truths as well. They just don't know that's what God's Word teaches, okay? Julia Oliphant wrote this article entitled, Why Do Girls Check Out Other Girls? In this article, she cites a study in which we read, Most women will agree that when we look in the mirror, we don't ask ourselves what he sees in us. We ask what she sees. Now, okay, I'm not encouraging you men the next time that you're getting ready to go out and she's getting dressed, be like, what are you getting all dressed up for? And when she says you, you say, no, that's not what Julie Oliphant says. She says you're getting dressed up for her. Don't do that, okay? Just say, you look lovely, dear. Women compare each other's looks, figures, clothes, parenting, children. Now, when I grew up, there wasn't articles online about how you shouldn't feed your children 18 different kinds of dyes and the fact that you should have organic this and organic that and you better make sure that you don't wrap your children or let them sleep on their backs until they're this age and blah, 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 blah. I usually say to women, your worst enemy is the internet. Okay? Stop, get, stop, get off the internet. Stop comparing yourself. Probably the worst thing that could happen to women is to have phones with cameras. Because the way that we represent ourselves on Facebook and Instagram is not the reality. Okay? No, no women, no women get up in the morning and take a picture and be like, this is me without makeup. Scary, right? No. They, they create this false image, this false idea, right? And what happens because of these disordered desires created by fall and sin is that women begin to be filled with envy, greed. They desire because they, they look at what 
that woman has or that woman has, and that woman's life looks so perfect and put together. Oh, I wish I could be like her. Oh, her kids, look at them. They're all honor roll students. Oh, wow, I, I, I'll never be that. And then they become bitter. Now, if I could say one thing about women, okay, I probably should just rephrase it entirely differently. Let me start with men. When men disordered desires occur, this is what happens. They get angry. They bring the hammer down. They're impatient. They intimidate with their strength, right? Or lack of strength, in my case. I need to get back to the gym. But women, this is how they lash out. With their words. With their words. And I think it's because God has particularly gifted them to bring human flourishing through their encouragement and through the way that they lift up and through the way that they speak and give life. But the opposite is true too, right? The opposite is true too. Now, rather than than saying this is what I'm making up, okay, I'm going to give you a few of my favorite Proverbs. A few of my favorite Proverbs. Okay, you ready? (coughs) Proverbs 19, verse 13. A foolish son is his father's ruin. I quote that one to my sons often. No, I'm just kidding. And a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. This is what God's word says, okay? Not me. This is what God's word says. This is what you need to understand. What God is saying here is that women are powerful with their words. If any of you men came up to me after the service and said that was the worst sermon I've ever heard preached, you know what? I'd probably brush it off and go to sleep tonight peacefully. If my wife hints, looks at me strangely, I will be up all night questioning life. That's the kind of power she has over me. That's the kind of intimacy that she has over me. And maybe some of you would say, maybe some of you would say, well, you need to have, you need to, you know, get a little bit more strong towards your wife and not be so soft towards her. No. No, I'm not going to sacrifice intimacy with my wife because I don't want to be hurt. I married a sinner. She married a sinner. We're going to hurt each other. All right? Proverbs 21, verse 9 says, Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. The modern equivalent to that would probably be like, better to just go out in the garage than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 21, 19, Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. What do these Proverbs mean? They mean... The wife is particularly gifted in such a way that if she lifts up with her words, her house will blossom and bloom and be filled with joy and glory and wonder. But if she uses her words to emasculate her husband, to to complain and to be mean because she knows all of his weaknesses and she can push them and she can point at them and she can poke them, then their house is death. God's like, it, you know what, man, just, it's better for you to just go out and die in the desert than to be in the house with a quarrelsome wife. Women cut down with their words. They do this to each other, and they do this to the men in their lives. And because of this, too, women 
are often given to gossip and slander. I would like for you to look up in scriptures how often women are encouraged to not gossip, to not slander, to not speak of others, to not... Do men struggle with this as well? Yes. But because women are women, their nature, because they're created as women, they're more susceptible to it, okay? Women, your challenge is to approach the men in your life in a way that doesn't emasculate them, doesn't incite their flesh, but gently affirms and nurtures their masculinity. How can I give you an example of this? An example of this would be like when, my, uh, when I get up in the morning and I'm grumpy and I yell and I'm impatient with my kids and my wife says in private later or maybe in a text message, babe, I know that you're, you're dealing with a lot right now, but you were a little impatient with the children. Please uh, pray about that and please you know, strive to be more patient with them and not, not explode with them. Now, if she, had come, if she had come up to me and said, I know you were just telling all them men at the, at the church that they need to be like Christ, and why aren't you doing it, huh? Then I would have been like, mm, I got some things I want to say about you too, woman. That's death. Life through words, right? Another challenge is perfectionism, and I'm seeing I'm running out of time, so we're going to go through this. Perfectionism is seeking for perfection in this life when God has not promised it and he's only given it to us in Christ, right? A recent article in The Atlantic entitled The Confidence Gap discusses how men are more willing to take risks in their pursuits even if they're underqualified or undereducated, whereas women who are overqualified and overeducated won't. Listen to what the article states. Perfectionism is another confidence killer. Study after study confirms that it's largely a female issue, one that extends through women's entire lives. We don't answer questions until we are totally sure of the answer. We don't submit a report until we've edited ad nauseum. And we don't sign up for that triathlon unless we know we are faster and fitter than is required. We watch our male colleagues take risks while we hold back until we're sure we are perfectly ready and perfectly qualified. We fixate on our performance at home, at school, at work, at yoga class, even on vacation. We obsess as mothers, wives, sisters, friends, Cooks, athletes. Perfectionism is an idol because we pursue in this life what can only be found in God. It's a denial of the weaknesses and hardships God has given to you in this life. And it's because of this desire for perfection that women in particular, particular have that women are the ones who are most often struggling with depression. Women are the ones who commit suicide at higher rates. Women are the ones who largely self-mutilate. Women are the ones who deal with body image and have uh, um, um, food uh, eating disorders like bulimia and, and anorexia. This is why, because you think you can have perfection in this life. You think that you can gain it, that you can strive after it, that you can grab it, that you can have it, that if you would only achieve that further mark, that finally you would feel like you're the kind of woman that you should be, that finally you're the, you're the woman that, that, that you need to be. But I want you to know this. It should be a weight off to you. You don't have to be a perfect wife to be a great wife. You don't have to be a perfect mother to be a great mom. What's, what's, what's the difference? The difference is the continual ethic of repentance 
seeking forgiveness and striving again for what God has called you to. The difference is knowing what you're called to and realizing that you're falling short and that's what grace is for. Women, I'm going to tell you, you don't have to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. You aren't perfect. And it's okay. God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is to you. And how much would it do to just let that weight off and say, Honey, I'm sorry I lashed out at you. I'm sorry that I'm angry. I'm trying to be perfect and I can't be. I would just want to depend on Christ. Will you help me? Will you lead me in that? These things are contrary to the beautiful femininity that God has called you to. But because of what Christ has done for you, you're now free to move forward in the role as the woman God has called you to be. And this is the last part, positive representation. I talked about it being a joyful disposition to receive, affirm, and nurture spiritual leadership from worthy men. Joyful because this is something women are called to do freely and with joy and not begrudgingly. It's a path that leads to flourishing in life, not death and destruction. We know that because it's in God's word. And I say disposition because much of what a woman is called to is in response to what men are called to. This phrase is also used because I want to communicate an attitude of the heart rather than a list of behaviors, since this will look different from relationship to relationship. For instance, this looks different in a marriage than it does with your brothers or with a daughter to his father, her father, and so on and so forth. So it's a joyful disposition to receive. That's what I mean by a response to what God has called men to. The receiving, affirming, and nurturing of women is all a response to the strength and leadership of worthy men. Key word being worthy. Now, we shouldn't take the lowest common denominator when it comes to men, right? Think of the worst stereotype of men. Throw it out. And because of that, we shouldn't take the lowest common denominator of women, the worst stereotype of women, throw it out. So basically any romantic comedy you've ever seen, just toss it. It's a, it's a poor reflection of, of what God has called us to, right? It either strives for making it look more beautiful and perfect than it is, or um, it's corrupt and wrong. What we're tempted to do here is to strive after what God's word is pointing us to, not what sin in the world has distorted it to be. So receiving here is the idea that it should feel natural and joyful for women to accept the strength and leadership of worthy men. Men who are living up to and striving after the qualities described in last week's sermon. Men who are seeking to sacrificially love their wives as Christ loved the church. That it should feel natural for a woman to receive that kind of leadership. Now people in this world might buck against that definition. But the idea here is that if they came into your house and saw the way that you loved your wife and how your wife gladly received that leadership and how she was confident that you had no eyes for anyone but her, that she was loved and cherished and nourished and encouraged, that they would say, I'm sorry. I said that was a bad idea, but the way I'm, I'm seeing your family, it's not. It's great. It's beautiful. It's what I want. This is the kind of submission that our scriptures this morning were speaking of. 
It's not domination or oppression. It's this glad, willing, joyful submission to her husband because he is leading sacrificially. Men are called to model Christ in the marriage relationship. This is Ephesians 5. Women are called to model the church in the marriage relationship. Now, unless you think the idea of submission is belittling, this is what I want you to consider. Consider the reality that Christ himself, as the God-man, submitted himself to the will of the Father in our redemption. Now, do you think Christ's submission to the Father in the garden saying, not my will, but yours be done. And then he went with joy before him to the cross to die on the cross for our sins. Do you think that made Christ less than God the Father? If you do, then now you're a Trinitarian heretic. Okay? That did not make Christ less than. That is what makes Christ our model. He says, think have this attitude among yourselves that Christ, although he did not have, he was God, considered equality with God, not something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself. Okay? So in one sense, model for both the husband and the wife is Christ. But, the, but if the man is not modeling Christ in the relationship, if he's ruling over her harshly, it will not feel natural for the woman to receive that kind of leadership. That's why I use the words worthy men, as the kind of men that women should joyfully receive, affirm, and nurture leadership from. This is exactly what Peter is speaking to concerning Christian women who have husbands that are not saved. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, Wives, wives live, uh, win them over with your actions, the way that you live, the purity and reverence of your lives. You see, there's still a disposition that she can have that communicates to her husband that she's willing to submit and receive the proper kind of leadership from him, um, but, he will, but she will not forsake Christ for that. It's also important to notice that Peter is speaking directly to the women in the church. They have a role in the congregation, and they are intelligent. Peter expects them to be able to hear these words, to be able to respond to what he's instructing them to do. And this leads us into the next two aspects of biblical femininity, affirm and nurture. This is an important part of the definition because it shows us that this is an intelligent and positive action. Women are not to be pushovers, who blindly follow men, no matter what the quality of these men are. Women are not to be weak-minded. There's some women in this church who probably know more theology than I do. There's some women in this church who come up to me after a sermon and said, oh, are you reading that Richard Phillips commentary on John? Because I saw some of that stuff in your, in your sermon. That's not intimidating to me. What, what God calls women to in the scriptures is not some namby-pamby, oh, I just want to cook in the kitchen and bare feet kind of women. They need to be sharp-minded. They need to be intelligent. If they are being called to affirm and nurture what God has called men to, then they have to know what the scriptures are calling men to. They have to be knowledgeable of what God is calling Christian men to. They have to be knowledgeable of what God is calling themselves to, and they have to be striving after that. Men, if you are intimidated by a woman who knows her scriptures and who knows her theology and who's well-grounded in what we are called to know and understand from the scriptures, grow up. That should be something that calls you to learn more, to strive after. 
The helper role of women is irreplaceable and indispensable. Women have a huge role in the flourishing of the home, the church, and the culture. To affirm and nurture means that women are to be knowledgeable concerning the calling of men. Affirming and nurturing show us, shows us that women are not passive in this role. They're called to call men to be what God calls them to be. They affirm and nurture the leadership of men. They shape and conform and mold men. They can do this in a negative way and they can do this in a positive way. You see, when women play their complementary role, they do it in an intelligible and powerful way, in such a way that when women do not play their part, men do not flourish the way they are called to. They take the back seat to become poisonous and harsh. When women play their part, men step up to their calling. Men rise to the occasion. Men grow up. This is how the comp- this is this is complementary in the weaknesses and strengths complementing one another, men and women. You see, I've gone back to the beginning to show you where this is rooted in Scripture. I've shown you some of the challenges you face in pursuing that calling women. And then I've attempted to give you a positive representation of biblical femininity from our Scripture passages today. My desire for you today is that you would see this beautiful picture God has created for you, this role He has created you to play in the story of redemption, so that in God's grace, you could wrestle against the flesh, those things that are striving to bring you down all the days of your life in order to pursue it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown us in the scriptures what we are called to as men and women. We ask that you would help us and give us your grace that we may live according to your word in all our ways and may know that this is the life you've called us to, and it's one of flourishing and hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise.